Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome, Susie. Delighted to have you here with me on Sterling Goodbyes. Hi. Hi, Karen. Thank you for having me. Would love to start with a very special and meaningful piece of music. If I could trouble you to to play that for us. That was my dad playing the organ. Why is it special? How do you feel when you listen to it? Why is it so meaningful for you? Well, it's a video of my dad playing it. It's the only, other than photographs, it's the only thing that I've got of my dad. And my connection, huge connection with my dad is, is through music. He could play anything you just hear it and he could play he couldn't read any music and I am hugely into music too I go to festivals I go to gigs he was a part-time DJ or as his hobby of being a DJ he's left me thousands of vinyls and I've got a lovely memory of going to weddings he would put on Rupert the Bear when I was younger and so nobody would be dancing he'd put on Rupert the Bear and I'd get up and dance Everyone obviously felt sorry for this <laughs> little girl dancing by herself on the dance floor. So I was a, a floor filler, <laughs> but everyone would get up and dance with me. And I actually told my dad that memory when I last saw him, got to see him for 10 minutes the day before he passed. And he was had been incoherent for 18 days and he was a, a shadow of a man. I couldn't, he couldn't speak to me and I di- didn't even know if he knew I was there. And I did sing songs to him. And then when I told him about the Rupert the Bear story, he raised his eyebrow and I believed that he knew, he knew I was there. So that's a lovely anecdote, Rupert the Bear. I must say, I relate to the raising of the eyebrows because, I mean, obviously people say the hearing is the last thing to go. I spoke to my dad when he was dying over a video call. I said to him, you know, I'm on the way, we're coming, we'll see you. And he raised his eyebrows too. And I was delighted with that. It was lovely. I'm so sorry for your loss, Karen. And I'm glad that you take that as a, as a sign, as I, as, as I do too. Oh, absolutely. That's a beautiful anecdote. So tell me, your dad, John, where did you get this sort of prestigious musical talent from? He could play any instrument, was it? It was just natural. He wasn't taught. He just taught himself. So he'd play the piano, the organ, guitar, mouth organ, the squeeze box, anything. And he liked to fix them as well. So he would 
he would get instruments that didn't work and he would <laughs> his, his his flat was just full of organs everywhere and bits and pieces that he he would be fixing at any one time he wanted to bring them all back to life sounds like a really different interesting upbringing with a dad like that yes memories of him with his big headphones massive <laughs> massive headphones and just t- dancing away on the, you know, at, the, at the organ and <laughs> and he had a massive vinyl collection as well you said so a man of taste yes people of a certain age I think everything from Vera Lynn to, to the Sex Pistols <laughs> did he have a favourite song or artist or too many to mention he really loved Vera Lynn I've got one of her vinyls and he wrote Dame on it because obviously she wasn't a dame at the time when he, he bought it and he also wrote on it Sweetheart so <laughs> she was known as the as everyone's sweetheart wasn't she at his funeral we'll meet again the last song I chose that as we we walked out and sadly she passed away two or three days later after my dad so I just said oh, dad's up there waiting for you Vera tell me what he was like as a person and as a father as a dad he was um lots of fun um a twinkle in his eye mischievous never knew what he was going to be up to he was funny but he was a real gentleman, really kind, always thinking of other people, you know, put other people first. And he was a real gentleman, but fun. Are there any particular memories that stand out for you now? Things that you revisit? He lived in Holland for a while. So going out to, to visit him in Holland was great fun. I've got pictures of him wearing, it was in the 80s, wearing coloured braces. <laughs> that were mine and he put the coloured braces on and I was having a, a tankard together Dutch beer <laughs> he sounds yeah. brilliant great because dad how did he make your life better he was just dad to me very handsome everyone was very <laughs> jealous of the school gates oh your dad's very handsome <laughs> he was handsome and fun um, probably not very sensible not like a normal dad <laughs> Not conventional? No, not conventional. Lucky you, that sounds brilliant. Can you sort of bring me back to the time before your dad fell ill? what was going on in your lives and then talk me through what happened how you lost him um, my dad was in uh, sheltered uh, accommodation he had um he broke both both his hips the first time he he had a broke his hip he did physio and he recovered quite well not perfectly but but quite well and just walked with a stick the second time he broke the other hip the recovery wasn't good and he was bedbound he'd got friends he was in the local church he was a very social person as well as musical was very social and um, young people flock to him <laughs> he's got lots of younger friends the last time I saw him was the 20th of January on his 80th birthday we had balloons and cake and everything in his home I'm in London and he's in Hertfordshire so not not local I've got four children quite demanding with special needs and disabilities so I try not to feel guilty or bad that January was the last time I did see him as in March we went into lockdown and it, it was literally phone calls that if my dad had hadn't charged up his phone or his phone wasn't in reach I couldn't hear from him so he could be disorganized and etc etc when the pandemic hit I suffered from anxiety I've never had anxiety before but I got really really anxious I thought my dad's going to get it and my dad's going to die and I was really worried about my my children my own own family about there being food shortages I, I wasn't one that stocked up on toilet rolls I might add but I did go with a trolley and try to get every tin and packet and everything like a complete nutter thinking that how am I going to provide for my four children disabled husband how are we going to manage this is going to be 
hell on earth as, as it was. My sister's in Australia, so there's just me and my sister, and my parents are divorced, so my dad was just dad, me and my sister. I got a call from his sheltered accommodation on Monday morning, I think it was the 30th or 31st of March, saying your dad's got a suspected UTI and it's been taken in an ambulance to hospital. Urinary infection. Infection, yeah, sorry. And this was quite normal for my dad because he was bed bound. It was just something that happened and think too much of it. And I rang the hospital and they said he was in recess. And the first thing they said to me was, does your dad have a DNR? I said, oh, I don't, what's one of those? I had no idea what a DNR was. And when they told me, I dropped the phone. I was in shock. I just couldn't, I couldn't get my head around why would somebody not resuscitate my wonderful amazing dad that had so much to you know to give to not myself but you know other people we know picked up the phone and from then on it was a 18 days of roller coaster one one day it'd be good one day it'd be bad or he's eaten some porridge he's done this he's done that but he was incoherent although they could hold the phone to him and I could talk and sing I never got anything back I couldn't see him there was no FaceTime or anything like that. Incredibly hard for you at the time and obviously looking back on that as well that it was a one-way street of communication. And then I had to communicate to Australia so many hours later every day and then a couple of hours after I told my sister you know maybe the good news I'd ring the hospital and it would be bad news and he was moved so many times and each time he was moved they couldn't find him the next day when I rang in the morning there was no communication was dire I was never rung I always rang them and they couldn't find him so I just thought the worst every time they didn't know where he was I thought I thought he'd passed but they found him again and and I've said why do you keep moving him in the middle of the night it's really it's really distressing I said has my dad got a high temperature has my dad got a cough no he's got a low temperature no cough low temperature what were you thinking at that point then just that he'd got a UTI, but I was concerned about COVID, but he'd got a urine infection. So I was just asking COVID what I thought were COVID questions because I wasn't being given anything. I was just told about porridge and yogurt and more like food, what he was, you know, that sort of Was it your fear that you might lose him or not really at that point? I don't know. They said, no, he's got low temperature. So I Googled low temperature and it said sepsis. So next day I said, has my dad got sepsis? And they said, we're treating him for sepsis. I don't know why they didn't just tell me that that's what they were doing. Friday, I got quite a good report. So it'd been on the Monday and on the Friday, it was all quite, quite good. They'd done COVID tests, but they had lost the results having a good day. And on the Saturday, someone rang me which was unusual because nobody had rung me before. And it was someone asking me if I wanted my dad to be put into, um, telling me that they were going to move my dad into a care home. And I said, wow, just because he's had a good day, he's he's going into a care home. This is odd. And they said, yes, you'll be able to visit him because you can't visit him now. And he'll be able to take all his belongings and put pictures on the wall and have pictures. And they really sold this wonderful thing to me <laughs> that was, it was all all good Which and I said was it Susie he was in the lister but he was going to be I think Meadows something or other I don't even I don't remember where they were going to put him so I said oh well why is this happening and this lady who wasn't med- medical in any way it was just some bit moving beds said well because of Covid and I thought she meant because of Covid in the hospital and then the penny dropped and I said you're saying my dad has Covid she said yes didn't you know oh my word that's how you found out how awful yeah so I said can I speak to a, a professional and it was a weekend and they said no there's nobody can speak to you at the weekend 
So I had to hold that to the Monday and also speak to my sister. And on the Monday, I got to speak to a doctor and the doctor said, there's been a mistake. So I was like, yes, <laughs> it's been a mistake. They said, we're not moving your dad anywhere. Yes, he's got COVID. But he's staying in the hospital. What happened with the DNR? Do not resuscitate. They said it's it's up to, up to them. They can override a DNR. You don't have to have anyone's permission. My dad was, well, he was bed bound. He was, to them, he would appear frail. He's always been thin. He's, you know, he's a, a thin chap. He's not you know he's not never been overweight and he's and he's thin but that's how how he always was but without relatives going in or being able to say this is what my dad is always like which you know it's, it's very difficult with having no communication you've literally got a patient and no history and no family to fill you in you just look at a patient and think oh this is an old gentleman of 80 he was denied all I would say he was denied oxygen I think they did try to give him oxygen and he, and he pulled it off because they said he was very um, he was very distressed. He wouldn't get into ICU or anything like they wouldn't be incubate, intubated or anything. So they just made him comfortable. They weren't going to treat him in that way? No. Then they said he'd got ischemic legs, which is a, now seen it, it, it is a sign of, of COVID. So both his legs were mottled and, and purple. So that's sepsis and, and COVID. How are you feeling and at that point? Dreadfully low. Yeah, they said even if he'd got, you know, he, he was definitely going to go one way or the other because of the, the COVID and the, the legs with the sepsis. What I didn't say just now, actually, when the lady was saying about putting my dad into a care home, as soon as they said that, that he'd got COVID, I said, how dare you? And I said, my dad's not going into a care home. My dad wouldn't want, want he would never want to go into a care home and spread COVID. If you know, know he's got COVID, how could you knowingly put my dad into into a care home? And the it was tried again they tried to put him in a care home again and I said the same thing I said no my dad wouldn't want that my family wouldn't want that and we know my dad's dying I, I want my dad to die with dignity I don't want him on a trolley or in a ambulance or halfway between a, a building and, and what what have you please let my di dad die with with dignity so you stood up for him but I wasn't allowed to visit him they kept saying how would your dad feel if you took it back to your family and your your children? You, you know, I think it was PPE, absolute lack of PPE, because on the 15th of April, the then Prime Minister, Mr Boris Johnson, said that you were allowed to visit anyone in palliative care. And my hospital had said, no, I couldn't. And I rang and I said, I'm coming. I said, the government have changed the rules. I, I'm allowed to come. I'm, I'm coming. That's it. I'm coming. It was a really, really hot, sunny day. I was literally in shorts and T-shirt because I thought I was going to get the whole hazmat suit with the hat, the shoes and, and everything. I, I wore as little as possible to accommodate, you know, being roasting hot with a mask and everything on. And when I got there, I was given a flimsy little apron, pair of gloves and a paper mask. No visor, no no nothing I was absolutely horrified and I spent 10 minutes with my dad because I was I was scared at, at that point you didn't know you know I could die I could give it to my my children god forbid if I was to give it to my children I isolated for two weeks I just spoke to my my family on on zoom we've only got one bathroom so I'd have to clean everything I touched and I'd have to warn them that I was going down the stairs to the bathroom and I ate in my room and kept myself isolated because I didn't want 
anyone to get it. I had to go and see my dad. I had to. I just had to do that. I know some people have said that they're glad that they they didn't because what they saw, I mean, what I saw was awful. I don't regret going because there's things I couldn't do that that was one thing that I could do. There are people who regret not challenging the rules or what they were told by medical staff, you know, that they would have brought their own people, you know, that they felt, you know, their time again, that they would they would have gone in. And were you there when he passed, Susie? No, I was there on the on the 15th in the afternoon and I, I stayed in in Hitchin and was going to go every day before I got to the hospital the next day I got the, the dreaded call and my dad had passed so I didn't I never I never saw him no tough dealing with feelings your loss the loss of your dad has been surreal doesn't feel real almost sort of dreamlike and that's something that a lot of COVID bereaved people have said and that's down to the fact so many of these death rituals or have taken for granted didn't happen how has that impacted you surrealness I think that I I see my, see my dad in, in other people in crowds and that and I think oh, that's dad I didn't see him I mean I presume that we couldn't dress him I assume that he was in a hospital gown maybe in a body bag I couldn't touch the coffin I couldn't kiss the coffin couldn't put flowers on the coffin all those things are so important talking about thinking I've seen my dad I was at the doctor's once in the waiting room and I looked down at the floor and there was a gentleman and the first thing I saw was his socks and sandals and I just burst into tears because that was so my dad socks and sandals and I just just cried and thought I don't know if dad really was in that in that coffin I didn't I don't know I trusted well trusted so many people with that they were doing the right thing and that everything just believed and I think it's what's turned me into a bit of an activist because I don't I'm always a bit of a goody two-shoes and obey the rules and do as I'm told and and I think where's that got me I need to fight for my dad fight for justice fight for fight for these things and that's what's helping me in my in my grief what's getting me through I think doing I'm more of a doer than a I can't watch and listen I have to do I think the issue is that those things such an important time the people that we love so important that these things ordinarily we would control and take so much time and care over only was there no goodbye you just in many cases didn't even see your loved one people haven't been able to close the circle and feel you know their loved one that the loss didn't happen they know it happened but on another level they feel that it hasn't and that person could just turn up you know walk through the door that's something that you very much feel is it yeah I feel I've been robbed of so much uh, my father-in-law's just recently passed and he was a military man and had a huge military funeral and pleased or happy is not quite the correct words but for my partner that he was able to have that for his dad it hurt me to think that my dad everything that he had my dad didn't my sister's is in Australia so she couldn't come to the funeral she couldn't come to the memorial it's And your dad was an RAF man, you said. So he would have had a, would you have had the big sort of military funeral for him more? I think we'd have had a lot more than we did, yes. (laughs) We did our best. We all wore orange, my dad's favourite colour. And we chose Vera Lynn. So my dad loved Vera Lynn. And we had, he loved jazz. So we had a a big jazz number, like one of the James Bond films starts with a big jazz number and they go into a a funeral, a funeral march. And we had that because I knew my dad would think that was funny that I'd copied the James Bond movie (laughs) and got his music when the saints go marching in and a big, huge jazz number, but obviously on a CD as we didn't have anyone. It was just a few, a handful of us, five or six of us. But we had the big, the big number and I I wanted to bring a bit of humour and we all had to wear bright orange as well and 
unlike black because my dad was not conventional. No Rupert the Bear though? No. <laughs> Can you tell me, I mean obviously Boris Johnson's handling of the pandemic woeful, catastrophic, is there anything in particular that really gets under your skin about his mishandling of things? A lot of things do, as with most bereaved. For example, bodies piled high is a it's awful. But the worst thing for me was Partygate. My dad died on the 16th of April 2020. And a year later, I thought my sister would be able to be come to a memorial and we'd be able to do a memorial service for, for my dad. But we were still in lockdown. You could only meet six people outdoors and they had to be in the same household. And not even all my children live in the same household as me. So uh, my sister couldn't couldn't come over from Australia. My dad was from Brighton, so I went to Brighton took his ashes I didn't scatter them all because I want to save some for my sister I've still got them here I went on the pier and I scattered my dad's ashes and and I scattered some orange roses my dad's favorite color and that was it that was absolutely it and then to find out I think I found out in the January so almost a year later it came out that on that same day a suitcase was being wheeled across Westminster full of alcohol so that they could all party in Downing Street with no no masks no rules no nothing that would have spread further in and it was awful for the cleaners to have to come in and, and clean up that mess and put themselves at risk the next day. And I feel that they were just, they were dancing on the graves of our loved ones. They really were. It was like a punch in the stomach. It was just, I know other people that are not bereaved may think, oh, why do you keep going on about Partygate? Oh, it's, you know, never mind. Everybody made a mistake or everybody did this, that and the other. But he made the rules he knew the rules he made them he didn't obey them he didn't even admit he'd done wrong and his his has a duty his first top duty is to do the best by his citizens to keep his citizens safe yes a duty of care i think that's called but incredibly painful for them to have done that and you know that pain on top of the manner of losing someone to covid-19 un- unbelievable really because nobody knows what it's like to grieve in a pandemic you can't you can't hug anyone a hug is so so important really a hug is just <laughs> I hug everyone. <laughs> it's so important to have just a hug, a simple thing like a hug and not not to be able to have that. It's dreadful. Now you've mentioned activism as really helping you in terms of your well-being and just trying to move forward in a constructive way after the loss of your dad. Tell me about that. Um, I'm part of Names Not Numbers. Ellis, who started Names Not Numbers, just took a cardboard sign of his of his dad's name and he'd just take it to Downing Street and just hold the one piece of cardboard and I joined him taking my dad's name on a piece of cardboard we now have over 300 names that people have given to us and we've got them on banners and we put them all up Downing Street and we have a megaphone and we call out those names and we put them on social media and it brings comfort to people who said that their loved ones are not numbers their loved ones are names and we're calling out those names and it really brings comfort to people very empowering yes really empowering and your happy place tell me tell me about that and my happy place is the national covid memorial wall which we started on the 29th of march 2021 and i was there on the very first day i was warned that it was graffiti that we had no permission to do this and I thought if I was ever going to break the law, which never, ever <laughs> entered my head before, this was the this was the one thing that I could go to prison for to do this. So we painted 10 days solid. 
we painted 200,000 hearts and each heart is an individual heart because it's for an individual person there's no stencil there's no there's no having to do it precise you know it can be a bit wobbly a bit bigger one side a bit <laughs> not perfect like all our loved ones were and they represent a, a beating heart and they're opposite parliament so it's a reminder to everyone in parliament about the mistakes that they've made and we'd really like that wall to be permanent permanent memorial because it's a memorial made by bereaved people the first day that we started it was the first day that we met anyone else that was bereaved by covid we came together we told our stories to each other we cried together it was such such an such an important thing it's still really important still people years later give me names and i go to the wall to my happy place write their dedications in in their hearts they write the, the date their loved one and any any message and there's 25 panels so each panel is numbered and i can give them the exact location when they're up to going and seeing their own heart they know where it is and people travel far as you know, scotland ireland to go and see their hearts that's a weekly a weekly trip for you is it yes with a group of people or just different people the friends of the wall paint the wall every friday i no longer do that i just take dedications put the dedications in the hearts as and when i'm, I'm requested i'll be going on friday as it's my dad's anniversary it would have been his 83rd birthday so i go on events like father's day birthday at christmas i took candles because i don't have a a grave I don't have a, a place to me that's like my dad's it's like my dad's grave so I often take orange roses incredibly to symbolic place what would you like the government to do I'd like them to to give us permission for it to be permanent and then like to put a, a glaze over it we can't put glass or any, anything over it because it's a it's a protected wall it's a it's a barrier from the from the Thames so it has to be made permanent I'm just going to play a little bit of music for you now smiling away yes <laughs> that bit of music it's a, a one hit wonder so it rarely rarely gets played I don't even know if my dad ever heard it whether he likes it and nothing there's not really a, a connection with it but I said to a friend when I heard it once before he passed I said oh I really like that that song how come I don't I don't know that band they so it's just a one hit wonder you know you re- we rarely hear it and it's never on the radio an American but, band isn't it the bravery whenever I'm upset or I'm crying or really down or something's happened I turn the radio on and it's playing it's weird and I can't fathom it I knew that I'd never see robins I knew there'd never be white feathers I knew I knew if there was going to be something it would be through music if there was going to be something it's just uncanny that just happens to play every time as you see it makes me beam and it makes me happy and it makes it takes away whatever I'm feeling it just lets me know that my dad's still here 
he's he's in my heart he's here he's with me always um, yeah so music is is something that's helping you through absolutely try and sum up your dad's legacy what would you say my dad oh, <laughs> he's a gentleman first and foremost always had a twinkle in his eye he never knew what he was up to he wasn't a conformist he wasn't traditional <laughs> he wasn't a regular dad he was my dad I loved him he loved me dearly he was compassionate he helped others he was kind and thoughtful and very musical very talented what would he think about your activism that you're so very heavily involved with the many covid bereaved groups and making these people visible i think he'd be surprised because i've never ever done anything like this in my life before i think he'd be he'd be shocked and surprised but i think he's up there with all the other bereaved people i think he's brought me together with we think all our our loved ones are together and they've brought us together to, into all these groups we were meant to meet each other and it's i think he'd be proud definitely thank you so much for opening a door into your world with your dad because uh, it's been a lovely lovely journey and he sounded absolutely wonderful thank you it's been so lovely to tell my dad's story especially nearly three years later and i didn't think i would i would get this opportunity it's been a long time so it's, it's been really cathartic just talking about my dad i love talking about my dad music and talking yes <laughs> good good ways to get through well you're both very deserving so thanks for your time susie Keep up the good fight thanks for being here on selling goodbyes thank you bye thanks so much for listening please do subscribe and review the podcast if you get a minute and if you'd like to make a donation you can do so via the show notes the price of a coffee would be fantastic and also please do follow Stolen Goodbyes on Twitter at Rise KMC and under Stolen Goodbyes on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to participate you can email at stolengoodbyes at gmail.com or visit my website www.karen-rice.com. Good luck. Mm-hmm.